You are listening to Currents, a podcast of Big Ocean Women. Today's episode is a part of our special at-home series, Interesting Conversations from My Home to Yours. Today we will be talking to Erica Komisar, a clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, and parent guidance expert who has practiced in New York City for 30 years. Ms. Komazar is the author of Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, and The Sky Isn't Falling, Raising Resilient Adolescents in the New Age of Anxiety. The Currents podcast aims to gather women who are deliberate thinkers, women who are prepared to engage as powerful forces for good in their homes, their communities, and the world. I am today's host, Shelley Spots. Welcome to the show. We're talking to Erica Komisar, and we'd like to start out by just having you tell us a little bit about your first book and how you came to write it. Well, my first book, which is called Being There, Why Prioritizing Motherhood in the First Three Years Matters, um, was a book that I felt I needed to write because as a therapist and a parent guidance expert, I was seeing um, an increase in mental disorders in younger and younger children. They were being diagnosed and medicated at a younger and younger age. And it was really disturbing to me as a psychoanalyst um, who specialized in really helping families to see this trend. And I started looking at all the research and there was a lot of research. Uh, well, there was always a lot of research in the field of attachment um, dating back to the 60s. But there was also a full body of research in psychoanalysis. And then from the 90s on, a real body of research in neuroscience and then a new body of research in epigenetics. So I looked at all of this research for about, gosh, 10 or 12 years. Um, I collected everything I could and read everything I could. And then I really put it together in a really readable, palatable form for lay people. So they could not only understand what we as therapists were understanding, that the, um, the increase in mental disorders we were seeing was connected to um, a decrease in interest in children meaning um, we had become a non-child-centric society. Um, We had become a very me, me, me society, but we had forgotten about the children. And what that meant is that, um, you know, mothers and fathers were just more self-occupied and occupied and in in a way for survival, occupied with their, you know, economic survival and so many things, but also that we're all just very self-focused. And what we've forgotten is that the first three years of a child's life are um, the, the kind of the most important, what we call a critical window of development for the right brain of a child. And the right brain, meaning by the age of three, 85% of your right brain or social emotional brain is developed. The right brain is responsible for emotional regulation. So if we aren't there from moment to moment, Um, as primary attachment figures in that first three-year period, then that child doesn't necessarily ever learn to regulate their emotions. And what we were seeing with all this anxiety and depression were disorders of emotional regulation, right? That's what anxiety and depression are. They are disorders of people not being able to regulate their emotions from going too high or too low. 
And, and so the, the absence of mothers, or should I say to be politically correct, the absence of primary attachment figures today could be the father. Um, but you know, mothers have a unique role and it's still primarily mothers. Um, the idea of that go-to person when you're in distress to soothe you from moment to moment is what builds the both emotional security and resilience in that right brain. Right. I was reading some of the reviews on your book and a lot of them mentioned words like bold and courageous and innovative. And I, I was sitting there thinking, you know, how have we come so far from this idea of, of being that primary caregiver, of being that figure who provides comfort in our children's life, that this, this idea, this concept of of just being present, of being a proactive presence in our children's life is seen as revolutionary. Mm -hmm. um, and and it, it has been just a cultural shift. So I love that you've addressed that. I guess the question comes down to this idea of why don't we value this presence, this mothering in our in our society? And is that is that something that you have deciphered at all? Well, I mean, I think, you know, not, not to oversimplify it, but I think sort of the, the gender sexual revolution did a lot of good for women, and I'm a benefactor of that, but um, as we all are, but I think it also was complicated in that, you know, usually with, with a movement, a political movement, a social movement, the pendulum has to swing pretty far for that movement to take hold. The problem is that if it swings too far to one side, then, you know, and, and is not really does not swing back to the center, then there are winners and losers. So maybe as women, you know, as individuals, we were the winners, but our children were the losers and our families were the losers. So, and in the end, I think, you know, as I say in my book, I think the mothers are losers too, you know, because I think okay. when you don't have that intimate connection with your child, may not feel like a loss in the moment because you know maybe you're not as overwhelmed or you're not as busy or you're not as obligated or burdened by your child but in the long run uh 40 or 50 years hence um, you will be a loser because you won't have that closeness with your child right. so we're all losers if the pendulum we don't want the pendulum to swing back to a time when women were prisoners uh of society's expectations, you know, we want to feel that we have choices as women. But, you know, in, in my estimation as a, as a psychoanalyst and as a therapist, one of those choices that we have should not should not then um, be to do harm to our children. That That's right. not a choice. Yeah. So for the pendulum to swing back into the center uh, where we have rights as women, but our children are really front and center. It is a more child-centric society where if we're going to have children, as we say in, in you know, being Jewish, we, we refer to the Torah a lot. The Torah talks about Yisareh Hava, which is the sacred obligation that if you bring a child into this world, you are responsible for that child, not only physically, but emotionally. Right. I, I agree. Absolutely. Uh, I am one of the, you know, I have benefited from that cultural revolution as well. And I remember being a freshman or sophomore in college and sitting in a class and I was pre-med at the time. And I had this vision of what I was gonna do with my career and how it was gonna work. And that vision did not include family. And when I met my husband and we started talking about, 
getting married and we started talking about having a family, I realized that the spaces I was seeing myself in, I was trying to fit myself into a male model of success. And I think the female model is sometimes a little bit different, that we need to have a little bit more of an alternative path and be okay with that alternative path. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I changed what I thought I was going to do. And instead of, instead of going for a medical degree, I, you know, followed some of my other passions, which are writing, which are telling people's stories, which are advocacy. And when I started graduate school, my oldest daughter was starting high school and we graduated the same year. So it, but it was, it was a moment of sitting and realizing that I did have that choice, that I could have followed that path that I had envisioned for myself, but there really wasn't room for, for my kids and my family in that path. So I think it's interesting to think about, you know, how are we going to get that pendulum to swing back, but also how then do we open society up a little bit more to some of these alternative choices for women that make it so that we can be successful, we can pursue our education, we can, you know, pursue leadership opportunities, but we're not sacrificing our children along the way. Yeah, I think people often call me a traditionalist, and I think they misunderstand my message, because um, to say I'm a traditionalist would mean to go back to a way of being where women didn't have choices. And I think what happens sometimes in our mother's generation, our grandmother's generation, all the generations before that, is that because they didn't have choices, many of them had children when they didn't want children. Right. Or they had children somewhat ambivalently. Um, and I think that can still happen, but I think it happened more then because it was expected of women to have children. And I think what I'm trying to highlight is that, you know, and this is a, obviously a complicated message and it's controversial, is to say, you know, you don't have to have children to have a full life. You can have a very full life without having children, but if you are going to have children, then you have a certain responsibility to make sure that they're emotionally well. Um, and that requires a lot of being there, right? right. Uh, but to say I'm a traditionalist, when what I'm really advocating for is a very new way forward where we integrate the best of the past and hopefully the best of a different kind of future. Right. Uh, where we can still have, right, be educated, still have meaningful work. Freud said you need love and meaningful work to be happy, to be mentally well. And he wasn't just talking to men who had paid work, he was talking to women too. So whether your work is paid work or non-paid work as a woman, um, we have to have love and meaningful work. For a lot of women, when they're raising children as full-time moms, their love is their meaningful work, but we can also have meaningful work outside the home. But love always came first. So whatever happens, how can we have careers where we are entrepreneurial in our path? Meaning if we follow the traditional path of a lot of careers, whether it's medicine or law or being a a therapist is a little bit outside of the norm, being a corporate type or a banker or whatever, if we follow traditional paths, then they dictate that we work more than full-time, that we're away from our families more than we're with our families, um, and that we're slaves to our work, particularly in America. Maybe if you lived in another part of Europe or something, you, you wouldn't feel that way, but that's the way it is in America. So I don't advocate for that. I advocate for whatever you choose to do professionally, you have to find a non-traditional route to do it. 
And there are some professions where that's easier than others. It may mean taking less money in the years that your children are very young. Um, it may mean, you know, maybe having to reroute some of your ambition or um, in those early years when your children need you the most, um, but you gain gains later on, you know. So that's a very untraditional way of thinking. It's how do I still have meaningful work but, but prioritize my children when they need me? Mm -hmm. um, and that way when your children leave you, because they will leave you, um, not permanently. I mean, they do come back. I have older children like you do. And they, if, if, you, if you handle this parenting thing well, they want to be near you. And if you don't, they want nothing to do with you. So that's what I meant by, you, you know, uh, if you don't do this, think this out and do this well now, you might be very lonely later. People don't think about that. You may have a lot of regrets later. But um, yeah, the idea is how do we remember as women that we will make gains in our careers later? If we start them before we have children or you know, when our children are a little older, we make gains when they leave us. We're gonna have a lot of time without our children to make lots of gains with our careers. Yeah. Well, and I think we're living at a time when a lot of this refashioning of career paths is more possible than it has ever been. We look at the disruptions of the last year and people discovering alternative routes to working from home, to working from remote locations, to working at different times of the day. I'm a writer. I, I work at night. My, you know, when my kids were little, they would go to bed and I would write while they were asleep or they'd take a nap and I would take a few minutes to write or do homework because I was still in school while they were asleep. And now that they're older and they're in college and I'm, you know, most of my kids still live at home due to the pandemic, they, they have come home uh, to, to do their schoolwork from here. And so I'll be working while they're working. And it's it's like a community together with each other. But this, this uh, time period we're in, like a lot of those gates, a lot of the gatekeeping that has happened is coming down. And so if we are looking at things, not from a traditional perspective, but from an innovative perspective, yeah. I think there's a lot of change that can happen now. A lot of that, you know, I can still be fulfilled. I can still have a work that I, that I love, but I, you know, put my love of my family first and we're not sacrificing our personal desires for being with a family. I, I was at a, meeting the sustainable cities conference in salt lake where you spoke in september last september and i remember someone standing and talking and she asked you a question that just sort of broke my heart and i would love to hear your response to that question again and what she said is you know her kids were grown and she was unable to be with them when they were little and now she feels a lot of guilt over that over that absence now in in you know, past that time, how do we come back from that as mothers, as families, if that was a choice that we had to make when our children were small? Well, I mean, what I say is that you can always try to repair rifts in relationships. Sometimes in, in reality, sometimes it's too late, and, and but often there's some wiggle room. And so we take advantage of whatever wiggle room there is to try to repair those relationships with our children. 
Um, and one of the ways you can do that is to take responsibility, you know, to really own what happened in your past. Um, so one of the most important things is to try to make the repair as quickly as you can. So when you realize that you feel these remorse, feelings of remorse, remorseful feelings, is to really take responsibility with your child, to, to go to your child no matter how old they are and express what you're feeling um, and, and express a desire not only to take responsibility for what happened in the past, which is hard, I think, for a lot of for a lot of women, but also to try to make amends and move forward in a different manner. And I think if you're fortunate, your child will still let you in. You know, what, what we all want is uh, when we feel hurt um, is for the person who hurt us to take responsibility. So as mothers, we can say we're sorry. And we can say that um, we, we have regrets and we would like to change that in the future. If your child lets you, then, then it is fortunate indeed. And also you, you have grandchildren to come, hopefully. Right. And so you can also make amends as a grandmother and you can teach your daughter through your own lessons, hard learned lessons, what you feel that you did well, what you feel you didn't. You can pass down the knowledge, right? We always want the next generation to learn from our mistakes if possible. So. Uh, we can share what we've learned with our children and then have a different relationship, hopefully with our children in the future and our grandchildren. Yeah. What does it mean to you to really be a present mother? You talk about being there and being there in those moments. So if we're talking to someone who's young, they're just starting their family, they're making those decisions to, to be a parent and they really want to be there. What does that look like? Well, being there isn't just a physical being there. I mean, you can be there physically and not be there emotionally. You can be physically there and be distracted or be disinterested or feel resentful um, or, you know, be depressed. I mean, there's so many things that can take us away from the people that we love, even though the people that we love are right in front of us. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, one thing that does that, unfortunately, is technology. You know, we're also addicted to um, being connected to our phones and our computers and the whole world and information 24 hours a day. So, I mean, the, the ability to not just be there physically, but be there emotionally and to be as present emotionally as possible when you're with the people that, that you love. Um, and that means putting away technology. It means compartmentalizing work. Some work is, is easier to compartmentalize than others, but um, to have boundaries that you adhere to. So, you know, when you say, I'm not going to work until my children are asleep. So that means when I'm here, I'm really gonna be here. I'm gonna play with my children. I'm gonna cook with my children. I'm gonna watch movies with my children. Um, but what I'm not gonna do is be on my computer or watching television um, while my children are trying to communicate with me or play with me or engage me. Um, so yeah, it's, it's being disciplined as a person. It's really having very good boundaries and yeah. say, you know, I'm putting my computer, my phone and my work in a basket and I'm not gonna pick it up again until my children are asleep. Um, or this is when I do my work, but when I come home, I'm not doing work and I'm setting limits with my workplace as to when I'll work and when I'll not work. Um, so a lot of it has to do with internal boundaries. 
Right. I know. And, and that is harder to do than it sounds like, because Very I know for me, for me as an author, a lot of my work is, you know, snatched from moments I have here and there. And I just remember one time about a year ago, um, I have a son who's 17. So he was about 16 and he is the chattiest person you have ever met. Like he needs to come in and tell me everything that happened in his day. And he will, he will just talk and talk and talk. And then he'll walk out of the room and five minutes later, he'll come back and he'll be like, I forgot to tell you about this thing. And he'll keep talking. He'll keep talking. And there was one day, I remember I was working on a deadline for an article. And so I was trying to squeeze a little bit of work in and I let, I let the work take up some of our family time. And I remember he came in and I was listening to him and then he walked out and I started working on my article and he walked back in and I was so absorbed in what I was doing. I didn't really, I didn't really acknowledge that he was there or that he was talking. And I looked up and I looked at him and he's talking and I internally was like, how long have you been standing there talking to me that I don't remember what you said? And what externally came out was, are you still talking? <laughs> and not, and I didn't mean it in a negative way. He has not let me forget that comment. <laughs> He's like, now he will come into a room and he will be like, do I have your attention? <laughs> and he'll make sure that I am focused on him. And it has become a little bit of a family joke. But at the same time, for me, it's become a little bit of a warning. Like, where am I putting my attention? And at, am I paying attention to my children when they need me? Because even though he's 17 and he's fairly self-sufficient and he takes himself the places he needs to go and he is in charge of his own schedule, he still needs that attention from me at, you know, at specific times. So I think, you know, learning to be present is a process. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, I would say the, the, the greatest gift you can give your children more than anything is, is your interest in them. Yeah. And it's obviously easier to listen to someone that we're interested in. And you'd say, well, of course you're interested in your children. But, you know, the reality is that, um, you know, if you had, the truth is, if you had a mother who was fascinated with you, who was very interested and hung on your every word and every piece of art and every, you know, every time they played with you, it's much easier organically, generationally to pass that down to your children. But if, as most of us did, had mothers who, again, had children, maybe felt burdened by it, maybe loved it some of the time, but really kind of were resentful that they weren't, they could see friends of theirs were out there becoming doctors or lawyers or Indian chiefs or whatever, but they weren't necessarily out there. You know, if there was any ambivalence, um, which is that love-hate kind of relationship to mothering, if they were bored, if they were, you know, depressed, whatever they may have been feeling, um, or they just didn't understand how important it was to actually play with children and relate to them and talk to them and listen to them. That, that lack of interest gets passed down. That's how we learn to mother unless we break the cycle. So, you know, why right. I became a therapist originally was to help people break the cycles of their own families. But that doesn't mean leaving behind the good stuff, taking the good stuff from their own families, if there was good stuff, yeah. but being able to break the cycle of the bad stuff, right? That's what therapy is about, really. 
Um, and but most of us, I don't think, uh, who had mothers of a certain generation understood that organically. We've had to learn it. Right. So hopefully our children will learn from us how to be interested in their children and not find mothering boring and not find caring for another a burden, but rather a joy. Um, but yeah, I would say that being interested in your children is probably the greatest gift you can give them and the, the, the greatest builder of self-esteem in that child. Yeah, I. Uh... I am by, by no means like the perfect mom. I was though very privileged to be able to stay home with my kids when they were young. And my oldest is now 23, my youngest is 17. And my son who is 19, and he is probably the one of my kids who has chafed a little bit more under the attention of having a mom who was like intensely interested in what they were doing with their lives. And, and part of that comes from being a writer. I'm an essayist. And so they were always great material, right? And so I was intensely interested in what they were doing. My oldest two loved theater and I loved theater. So I became the backstage mom. And uh, the, this son who's 19, he was a little uncomfortable with it. And we were having a conversation a week or two ago and he just said to me, he said, you know, I know I complain a lot about your attention, but I just want you to know that I appreciate your attention. Mm -hmm. And for him at 19 to say that, although, you know, he's living at home doing school in my basement because his college is all online and he was so looking forward to moving out and and having roommates and meeting new people and that college experience. So he's he's been uncomfortable in this space of like continued parental supervision. Yeah. So to have that acknowledgement from him, I felt like was really, it, it, it made me feel really good. Mm -hmm. So, but also I've had to learn to be interested in some of the kids, in, in some of their passions. Mm -hmm. My youngest, after three children, who love theater and love acting and sound design and all of this, you know, arts incorporated, you know, passions that I am also very passionate about. I, I have a son who is a football player mm -hmm. and he is just as passionate about that as his sisters. And I have to say, when he started playing football, I was like, can I be just as interested in this as I was in my other children and their pursuits and their passions? Can I, can I show him that same level of dedication? It became a little bit of a challenge and I'm not sure how it happened, but I am now a football mom. And I, and I go to his games and I can talk about football and it's really weird. The first, the first couple games, I was like, do you need your costume washed? And he's like, mom, you can't say that around the other, the other players. If you call it a costume, if you ask me if I'm going to rehearsal, they're going to make fun of me, <laughs> right? So it's a, it's a total paradigm shift. But it is absolutely and completely possible to be intensely interested in your children and what they're passionate about, even if it's something you have no interest in. Yeah, because I am not a sports person and have never been a sports person, but watching him be so passionate about what he's doing and so interested and he can talk to you about football plays 
for hours and he just, it is his own space of creativity. And I appreciate that about him. I, and and it's, it's fascinating to me to watch that happen. So yeah, I think we can learn to be interested in our children, even if it's not how we were raised, even if it's not how we were parented. It's, we can it's learn. We can. And I mean, if you think about it, having a child is a very unique relationship because in almost every other relationship in your life, you are choosing people who share your interests, right? right. So other than your parents and your siblings, you are choosing friends, spouses, you know, maybe even coworkers that you're close to. You're choosing people who share your interests. And with your child, they can be very different than you. Yeah. Um, more like the relationship of a sibling who can be very different than you. Um, and so then it's, it comes from a different wellspring. Um, that interest has to come from a different wellspring um, and it may be a deeper one, right? So we say, if you share a common interest, that's the easy part. You know, if you have a friend and you share a common interest, it's easy to connect because they're like you. Right. It get, it's harder to connect with those that may not share those common interests, right? So right. then you're digging much deeper with your children to find a, a human connection with them. Um, maybe that's the definition of presence is having to dig that much deeper. Right, and I, I know in my own experience, creating those connections with people that are very different from me, those relationships become more worthwhile for me. They, they are deeper, they are based on, you know, finding that essential humanness between ourselves, finding that common ground. Mm -hmm. And I do think it's work though. So mm -hmm. it's, it's something we have to deliberately try to do. It doesn't just happen because we are genetically related. Yeah. So well, when a mother looks at a baby playing with a mobile or playing with the toys that infants and toddlers play with, um, you know, to under, I always say to mothers, learn what they're learning about, meaning understand on some interesting and intellectual level for you, read about it, understand what their brains are doing, that their brains are multiplying, that the cell growth is exponential. Every time they put a toy in their mouth, they're learning. Um, every time they look at a new object, they're learning. And so if you understand how and what's happening to their brain, it's fascinating. And you don't see it's, you know, so what do they say about baseball? Um, it's like watching the grass grow. Um, <laughs> but people love baseball because they understand the intricacies of what's happening. They understand the play, sort of like your son with football. Uh, they understand the plays. They understand when the baseball pitcher scratches the back of his neck because it means something or pulls his ear or um, right. how he looks at the first baseman. It's that understanding what's happening to your child that makes it fascinating. Yeah. Um, well, when, I think when you really understand it, then it becomes, you're more included in the process. Mm -hmm. Because when you understand what's happening, you're like, well, okay, let's do this thing because that's going to exponentially increase your growth. And, and it's no longer passive. It becomes active engagement. That's right. So I love that. Um, I would love for you to talk to us for just a minute about the second book you're working on uh, about creating resilience in children and young adults. 
So the second critical window of development is adolescence. So I wrote, the first book was essentially about the first critical window of development, which is zero to three. Um, so what we say is by, is again, by three, 85% of that part of your brain is developed. Um, what happens from nine to 25, because we know that adolescence is a much longer period of development than we ever have known before, starting earlier, ending later. Um, from 9 to 25, we call that the second critical window of development because there's a lot of growth and pruning or what we call reorganization of the brain cells. And it's quite similar to 0 to 3. I mean, there's a lot that goes on in 9 to 25 that is very similar to what went on in 0 to 3, interestingly. Um, and so it's a very important um, period of development because the environment matters a lot in those two critical periods of development. And who's the environment? We are as right. parents. And so we're their environment, a big part of it. So we have a great influence on them in those two critical windows of development. And, and so as a result, adolescence is a time when parents often think, oh, you know, the die is cast, it's all done, the clay is dry, there's nothing I can do. But there's a lot you can do. And so I think parents don't know that. And, and so the idea that um, even though you may not have gotten it to it the first time, you know, even though you may have, as you say, what if you have regrets because your child's now a teenager and you weren't there when they were really little? Well, guess what? You have this window uh, of opportunity to really make a difference again in your child's emotional security, um, in their emotional regulation and their ability to be resilient to stress the same, not quite the same, but almost the same as you did when they were little. Um, so again, if the temptation is to look at your child's burgeoning independence and say, well, they don't need me now. So I can go off and, you know, go full time into my career or travel a lot or whatever. And, um, and actually what I say to parents is don't be fooled by children's adolescence um, seeming independence. They need you as much as they did when they were little, but they need you in a different way than they did when they were little. They do need more independence, but they rely on you heavily uh, to be their backdrop, to be their uh, go-to person when they're in distress. And the, um, the, the analogy I use is it's like a, um, a revolving door, yeah? So you can't enter the door unless you come to the opening of that revolving door. So, and, and so teenagers give you opportunities. They let you in to their emotional life, but only at certain moments and on their time and when it's good for them uh, emotionally. They let down their defenses. And when that opening of the door comes around and you're not home or you're not there, then the door closes again and you have to wait until the next time the door opens. So when that door opens, as much as you can be there, to help them to regulate their emotions and help them with their distress, um, the better. I mean, you can't be there all the time. You couldn't be there all the time when they were zero to three either. But it's a period that, that parents don't really know. Um, they do have a lot of influence. Yeah, well, and it's a period that, that we tend to think of as them being very independent. And I know with my oldest who's 23, I mean, she still falls within that age range, right? If we're talking all the way to 25, Oh, that means all of my children fall within that age range. That means I need to work harder. Now, <laughs> but um, I have noticed, I, I, with, with the current pandemic situation, I'm doing a lot of my work from home. 
and they're off at school, they're doing their classes, they're doing their work and they come home. I can plan on trying to work when they come home, but they will all gravitate to the room I'm working in. Mm -hmm. And they'll start by just sitting in the room and then they'll ask me a question. And then it that time when they return seems to be like a pivotal moment when they are open to letting me in a little bit more. Mm -hmm. And so it has, it's come to, it's, it's evolved into a situation where I look like I'm working. I'm really just waiting for them to come home. <laughs> so I'm doing stuff that I can, I can easily leave and easily come back to uh, because they will, like all four of them will come in and they'll, they'll see where I am. They'll sit down. They'll want to share about their day. They'll want to have a conversation. They'll want to make a connection. And another time that that seems to happen with my older kids is if we're driving somewhere. Yeah. No matter how reluctantly they got in the car, by the time we've been in the car for 10 minutes, they're talking a mile a minute mm -hmm. and they're wanting to share and they're wanting, you know, feedback. And, and so there are, there, there are interesting opportunities, but you can't make them happen. No, you can't do it on your time anyway. Yeah. As an adult. And I think the other thing is to remember is if they offer you a sweetness of vulnerability in them in those moments. And you say, sorry, I can't do it now. Let's schedule this for later. Unfortunately, that doesn't work. You've yeah. lost the moment. And it's not to make parents feel guilty about every moment they've lost, but the more moments you can catch, the more you can help your children right. uh, in those moments. So, and, and again, you can't schedule, unlike with another adult where you can say, gosh, I can't talk to you right now. I'm in a business meeting. Can I call you later? Um, so it makes a good argument for dropping everything if your children actually open up to you. And, and if the revolving door opens and they let you in, mm -hmm. that anything else that might seem important in that moment from doing laundry to um, making a business call to, you know, you go, right, I'm just gonna drop this and be here for my child because this moment's gonna pass. And this is when I can help them because their defenses are down, but their defenses are gonna go right back up and I won't have that opportunity. Do you have any advice for being able to recognize those times of vulnerability in our children and when they are open to letting us in? Well, you know, they give you, they give you cues really. Um, you know, one thing that you said is, um, if you're side by side with your child, if you're walking the dog with your child or driving in a car with your child, or um, sometimes the moments where they'll let their guard down are moments where there's the least expectation of them. See, teenagers don't do really well when we expect a lot of them. So if we put a lot of pressure on them to deliver in a moment and you know, we say, right, I have time now. How are you doing? Tell me how you're feeling, how's school? <laughs> they don't do well in those moments. When they do the best is when there's the least amount of expectation, but we're relaxed as parents and we're there. Yeah. Kind of like wallpaper, you know, it's kind of, um, and if we're there with them and we're relaxed and there's no pressure on them to perform and produce and tell us how their day was, that's often, those, those are the moments when they're the most vulnerable. Yeah. Uh, the other thing is, I think, you know, to know your child is to know the details of their life. It's just like when they're little, right? Like you said, you know your son 
and football and how important it is. Like if you know his schedule of games and you know that they're playing a really hard team that week and you know, what was that, that particular game like? Cause it was a hard week or, you know, knowing the details in detail, knowing your child, um, not just knowing them in generality. So if you say to someone that you love, how was your day? I mean, it may work with your husband or your wife or your partner, um, may not also with them. Um, whereas if you say to them, I know you had this important meeting today, how did it go? You know, with your children, it's like you had a test today in math and you were worried about it. How did that test go? Um, so I think the idea of knowing your child with specificity um, and being as specific as possible also is a way to be intimate with your child uh, emotionally. Yeah, I think the more concrete we can be with them, the more in the daily details of their lives, the better. And, and that's good advice, not only for, you know, parent-child relationships, but any relationship, right? Any relationship. Any relationship, just checking in and saying, my kids, um, I am a relentlessly cheerful morning person. And they are not, which I think is common to most teenagers, young adults. But I will go in when they're in the bathroom getting ready and be like, how are you doing? What's on your schedule for today? And they're just like, mom, I, I can't talk, right? They just don't want to talk at that. So I've learned I need to give them their space at that time. Um, but it's later in the day and they do want those questions and they do want me to check in with them even though it seems like at their age it might be a little overbearing it might be a little bit too present in their life they really do want to see that I'm interested in the details that I remember that they had a test that they had a you know particularly difficult day something that was challenging or even something that was really good mm -hmm. so yeah, I, I think a lot of that connection is in the details. Yeah, and also, you know your child well enough to know if you're there enough, then you see the ups and downs. And if you're not there enough when you have adolescence, then you don't actually know what to look for. I mean, it sounds like a crazy thing you say because, oh, well, even if I work full time and I see them in the evenings, I know my child. But in fact, the only way you really know someone is to see them through the ups and downs of their day. And so right. now that doesn't mean you can't work. It doesn't mean you can't have a job. But again, I'm going to say, just like I did with the earlier book, more is more. The more emotionally and physically available you are, the more you're going to know your child because you're going to see them through the ups and downs of their days. Um, and I think one of the beauties of COVID is that we are more around our children, you know, may, maybe much to the chagrin of our children sometimes because they want more space, but we get to really know our children and see them through the ups and downs socially, academically. Um, the more we're there, the more we know them. Right. I think, yeah, when you think about this last year, it's been a challenge in a lot of ways and it's upended a lot of our expectations of how we live our lives. And at the same time, I think that there has been a huge benefit to our relationships with one another. Just, mm -hmm. just being forced into proximity with each other, being forced to share the same spaces, you know, being asked to really understand one another's schedules. We're balancing three college students' schedules here at home where they're doing Zoom classes and 
it's not only brought me and my husband closer to them, but it's brought them closer to each other. Mm -hmm. And I have loved seeing how suddenly my adult children are seeking each other's company mm -hmm. rather than, you know, oh, they're always going to be there. I'm going to go find friends. They are now each other's friends mm -hmm. and, and they look for that, that connection and that relationship first. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and I have loved that. I think we've discounted how much being just together can be powerful in our lives. Mm -hmm. so I remember listening to someone on a podcast a couple of years ago, talk about how one of the most detrimental things to uh, family relationships has been that we now have more than one bathroom. <laughs> and, and his point was that when you all have to share the same living spaces uh -huh. and, and coordinate schedules and, and fight over who gets to take a shower at what time, and we're all in the same kitchen area and we're all in the same shared spaces that we do, we do know those daily details of each other's lives in a more intimate way. And so while I love the space that I have, I, I do find myself more now seeking out those spaces that we share, that I share with my children a lot more. So when can we look for your second book? Coming out in September. Okay. So is it 10 months? All right. I am looking forward to it. Yeah. So uh, as we, as we leave our listeners today, is there any parting advice that you have for mothers who are looking to strengthen these relationships with their kids, help them make those brain connections that are going to help them regulate themselves and really, really just have the, the most, I don't know, all around well relationship with their kids that they can have? Well, I always say, um, and whether I'm talking about zero to three or nine to 25, I'm going to say more is more. You know, we can't be with our children all the time for a variety of reasons. And I'm not sure it would be good as our children get older to be there all the time. But the more we can be there emotionally and physically for our children, um, in their dependent years. And I'm gonna say that up to 25, they are still dependent. We know that they are still dependent financially in many cases, and they are still dependent emotionally. They still need you. They don't need you in the same way they did when they were infants and toddlers, but they still need you. So the more available you can be to them, for them and to them um, when they need you, uh, the, the more intimacy you will have with them, the closeness you'll have with them going forward, but the healthier those children will be, the more they'll be able to regulate their emotions, the more resilient they'll become to stress. Um, so more is more. I'll leave you on that note. <laughs> you have been listening to Currents, a podcast by Big Ocean Women. You can find us on the internet at bigoceanwomen.org, on Instagram, and on Facebook. Our guest today has been Erica Komazar, a clinical social worker, psychoanalyst, and parent guidance expert who has been in private practice for over 30 years. A graduate of Georgetown and Columbia Universities and the New York Freudian Society, Ms. Komazar is a psychological consultant bringing parenting and work-life workshops to clinics, schools, corporations, and childcare settings. She is a contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and the New York Daily News. This is a reminder that the world is a big place and we are small people, but even small people can bring about big change. 
Our music is First Rain by Ian Post, editing production by Ryder Spots at Fifth East Productions. Please join us again for in-depth discussion about interesting ideas and fascinating people who are trying to make a difference in their communities.